Good morning and thank you for joining us here from downtown Denver. My name is Matt Han, pastor at Grace City Church here at the corner of Park Avenue and Broadway. We're glad to have you for the third part in this series on counterculture. I realized as I began preparing this third in a series that the word itself, counterculture, can give you perhaps the misimpression that a believer's posture toward culture should somehow be contentious, that we should be counter or against culture. And we probably all know people who are generally negative, contentious, belligerent, maybe even quarrelsome about basically everything they're finding in culture these days, right? Uh, we have a, a very popular trend right now where people seem to know how to deconstruct other people's ideas, beliefs, and worldviews. And I don't really mean that in a rational way of deconstructing them, but at least attacking them, dismissing them, canceling them. And that's not what I'm talking about when I use the word counterculture. We're going to come actually at the end of this series, I believe in week seven, Lord willing, to the idea that ultimately what we're doing when we are living as counter-cultural followers of Jesus is that ultimately what we're coming to is the ability and the wisdom to actually build a kingdom culture that looks like and reflects the values of our Lord Jesus Christ. So today we're talking about evaluation. You know, the sermon title is simply Evaluating Culture. And the reason I'm saying this about how we're not just against everything, that's not our general posture of just, hey, if, if it's new, if it's in the culture, if the world has done it, if the city has done it, we're probably against it. And I say that because when you evaluate many things, it's not a necessary conclusion that you would land on the side of being against it. Let me just give you a simple example. If you were to take a test in a subject matter like biology or American history or something, there are many possible outcomes of taking that test. One could be that you find out that you're wrong about certain things. You could also find out that you're right about a great many other things. See, the value of a test is that it evaluates you against a known standard. It helps you understand what you know and what you don't know as measured against a particular standard. So a test is also an opportunity for growth. It's an opportunity for further learning if you use it that way. So that's what we're trying to do as we evaluate culture, is we're seeing it, this is an opportunity to continue to grow, to continue to learn, to continue to be better followers of Jesus. So as we talk about this, I'm actually going to give you the theme or the one big idea up front today, and then we're going to unpack this together with four Ps, okay? So the one big idea is the need to learn to evaluate everything in culture by the standard of the gospel for the sake of the gospel. And both of those are important. Learning to do it by the standard of the gospel or by the standard of God's word, but also for the sake of the gospel. And you'll see what I mean when I come to that point. We're gonna look at this as the, the prerequisite of evaluation, then the purpose, the process, and I'll give you some practice here at the end, hopefully in conclusion if we have a little bit of time. So number one, the prerequisite for evaluation. In other words, what do you need in order to evaluate culture? 
Well, what do you need in order to evaluate anything? And I kind of just hinted at this a moment ago, but if you're going to evaluate anything, you need a known standard. Okay, so guys, when you are deeply in love with that girl and you have finally decided that it's about time to pop the question, and you're gonna go look at engagement rings probably for the first time in your life, and it can be so intimidating because there's so many choices and so much money on the line, you are handed, right, a standard of evaluation. They give you the four C's, and they say, hey, focus on clarity, color, cut, and carat weight. And what you're doing with those four C's is, well, you're gonna find out that an engagement ring or a diamond is priced according to its scarcity. So the more rare a particular type of diamond is, like a, a rare color or rare clarity, like it's, it's crystal clear, has very few inclusions that you can see even under a microscope, that's more valuable than something that you look at and it's kind of yellowy and not cut that well, not a larger stone and so on. So you're, you're given a standard by which you can then walk into various stores and make a intelligent, informed decision. Okay, the NFL, National Football League. If you don't know this, I'm a big sports fan, but the NFL has an entire list of standards for what constitutes a catch. You know, and the more football you watch, the more you realize, well, you either catch it or you don't, right? Well, it's not that easy. So they have this whole list of standards. What actually is a catch and what isn't a catch? And what I've actually been doing the last two weeks leading up to today is I've been laying the groundwork for what we're coming to this morning about the need to evaluate culture in the light of God's word. So if you remember back to week one, I pledge allegiance. And what we talked about is how God deserves our primary fundamental all-encompassing allegiance because he is creator God. He is the savior of the world. He is our Lord. He has lived for us and died for us. And we owe this to him, right? That we would give him our fundamental allegiance, that we would look to him ultimately for our sense of safety and significance and even satisfaction, okay? So we're looking to God and saying, Lord, we are loyal to you first and foremost. And then last week we talked about all these different lenses that were just kind of default. By default, we're looking at culture through all these different lenses and it's important that we take time to stop and think about how, you know, for example, our race, our social economic status, our education, both our like a level and where we attended school, how that has informed us and indoctrinated us and become a set of lenses through which we look at culture and so on. But we, we learned last week, or we began talking about last week, how we need to learn to kind of step back, evaluate not only culture, but even our own lenses need to be interpreted through the lens of the gospel or the lens of God's word. And that brings us to this this morning. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, the apostle Paul is praying for a church and he actually writes out for them, here's what I'm praying for you. And in part, this is what he says. He says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. Now listen to this. He's saying it's important that you know that you can discern what is excellent versus what is simply good or what is fair or poor or horrible. 
Okay, but what does he say that you need in order to do that discernment? He says, basically, you need knowledge. And not just bare knowledge out there, like academic knowledge by itself, but he says knowledge that has been informed by love. And this knowledge and love are ultimately knowledge and love of what, or for what, or whom. It's for Jesus Christ in the gospel in the context of this prayer. So he's saying the gospel has to be your prerequisite standard for evaluating yourself, for evaluating culture, for evaluating everything. And when I say that the gospel is our our baseline prerequisite for evaluating culture, I don't don't mean just a cliche, uh, Jesus saves, right? Jesus saves. It's all about Jesus. And it is, of course, but I'm not talking about the gospel as a cliche, I'm talking about how the fact of the gospel is really everything that God has been up to since the beginning of time, or even before all time, and now, and forever, to be glorified in his son, Jesus Christ. And in the pages of God's word, we find God defining for us, here is what's true, here is what's right, here is what's good. Here is what's beautiful. And the reason that we pour through the pages of Scripture day after day trying to learn this book is so that we can hear from the very heart of God saying, I'm just giving you a standard. I'm telling you, hear from the mind of God, from the heart of God. This is what's good and right and true and beautiful. Okay? So the gospel is the complete story. I often refer to the gospel as a four-act play. Right, that going back to the beginning of time when the Trinity, Father and Son, or Spirit, are are in relationship with love of love with one another, one God, three persons, eternally existing, and they come up with this plan for the creation of the world, and that's Act One, creation, make all things good and right and beautiful. But very quickly, Act Two, the fall and how things unraveled because of sin, and so much of the Bible, but also our own contemporary history falls under that act too of just, we continue to see the effects of the fall and brokenness and pervasive sin. We see the curse, you know, work is painful. We, we wear down, we get tired, we eventually grow sick and we die all because of part of the curse, act two. Act three is redemption, which is God sending his own son Jesus to do something about that curse to wipe it away, to wash away our sin, to make us clean, to reconcile us to God, and to bring us home forever, which is then act four, restoration, or the consummation of all things in Christ. So creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, all of this is the gospel. So when we come to contemporary issues of culture that we might be evaluating some of us right now, like Black Lives Matter, like QAnon, like cancel culture, like the alt-right movement or the leftist Marxism movement. And if we're evaluating these things, you, you can't just say, well, Jesus saves, that's all that matters. But you need to understand a comprehensive gospel for real life. And that's what I'm talking about this morning. So the prerequisite for evaluating anything Christianly is to know this four-act play backwards and forwards. Like, what does Genesis 1 and 2 have to say about this aspect of culture? 
What does Genesis 3 have to say? The fact that things broke and fell apart. Um, what about all the human attempts at self-salvation since Genesis 1, 2, and 3? What does that have to say about this? What, what are the four gospels that point to the life and the teachings of Jesus? What does all that have to say about this? What about the resurrection? How did that completely change the way I'm looking at this? That this, this doesn't just automatically end in a curse and judgment and death, but there is a resurrection in Christ. How does that inform what I'm looking about? And how about the promise that he's coming again to judge all things rightly? That means to punish every act of sin and evil, but also to reward not even primarily every act of good, though he promises to do that, but to reward his own grace at work in our lives to bring us home through faith in Jesus. So this is what I mean by the gospel. It's this scarlet thread that runs all the way through the pages of scripture, the life, death, resurrection, new life forever, okay? And uh, I've used this illustration again last week, but if you had lousy eyesight and you knew you know, I need corrective lenses. I need to put those on either as contacts like I do, put them directly on my eyeballs, or I need to wear glasses and look through those lenses in order to properly see and understand and really interpret anything about my world. How important would it be for you to bring those lenses along everywhere you're going? Obviously, it would be extremely important, right? And I'm saying the gospel is that important as the prerequisite because it is the standard by which we can then evaluate anything else that's going on in culture, okay? So that's the prerequisite. Number two, the purpose. In other words, why do we evaluate? Or what is, what is the goal? What are we trying to accomplish when we evaluate things? And I want you to just think about this for, the mo for a moment. If, if you're in the produce section of the grocery store, why are you evaluating? Or if you're looking for a good deal on a used car, why are you evaluating? Or if you're trying to decide what college you should attend or what college your kids maybe are going to attend one day, why are you evaluating? When I mentioned the diamond example, looking for an engagement ring, guys, why are you evaluating? And, and here's why I'm asking this, because in normal everyday life, there are so many times that we just evaluate without even thinking about the fact that we're doing evaluation and our goal our purpose is not to criticize or condemn you know when we're in the grocery store we're looking for fresh peaches right we're not looking for something that's overripe and already going bad we're also probably not looking for something that's just going to sit there for a week and cannot be consumed when we're looking for a vehicle, we want something reliable. We want a college that's a good fit, that's going to challenge us, but probably be aligned somehow with our worldview, or at least has a subset group within that university that has something that's going to encourage us in that way. When we're looking for a diamond, we're looking for something that we can afford that is a good expression of our unique love for this one person. Now, what would you think if you were standing in the grocery store and you saw someone just berating the overripe peaches that they found? Bad peaches! You know, you would think, okay, this person has a few screws loose. You don't berate bad peaches. Okay, but, but when we turn to cultural and worldview issues, do you notice how often it is that we do exactly that kind of evaluation instinctively? 
When we evaluate other people, other beliefs, other ideas, other worldviews, other movements, how often are we evaluating simply to criticize or to condemn, to find fault so that we can tear it down? How often are we evaluating ideas and movements and worldviews so that we can prove that the people who disagree with us are not just wrong, but they are foolish? How often are we doing evaluation of ideas and movements and worldviews and beliefs to prove ourselves morally or intellectually superior? You know, woke. Like, we understand something that the plebes just don't get. And what is the outcome, friends, of that kind of evaluation when our purpose is to prove someone else wrong, to prove ourselves right, to say they're inferior, to say our ideas are superior? Is that likely to lead to objective, humble, winsome evaluation? Of course not. You know, what it leads to is conflict, hostility, because we go into stuff half blind, half deaf, just pushing people out of the way and creating conflict. But I want, here's, here's my point. The purpose of evaluation biblically, and this is a big word, but it's an important one. The purpose biblically of evaluation is missiological. In other words, it is something that aligns to our life's mission, which comes to us from Jesus. And Jesus would say, here's your mission. If you are a follower of me, you exist to glorify God, to enjoy him, but particularly by sharing the good news, the hope and the grace and the love and the truth of the gospel with everyone. Okay, so... What if evaluation had less to do with tearing other people down or building yourself up as superior, and it had more to do with simply seeking the glory of God and an opportunity to share hope with, yeah, maybe someone who's wrong, maybe someone who disagrees with you. Maybe you would even say, I, I do feel like I got this right and they got this wrong, but what if your goal was not proving that, but looking for an inroad for mission rather than simply morality or superiority? What is the outcome of that kind of evaluation? Do you see how this kind, this purpose of evaluation would make you more objective, more humble, more winsome, less looking for something just to divide and have conflict over, but looking for opportunities, angles, perspective that you can gain to share Christ more fully, more accurately, more beautifully with these people. This brings us this morning to Acts chapter 17. I want to give you two examples of this this morning. The first of these is going to be a little bit of a narrative, in other words, a story. The second of them, we're going to read just a few verses of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and it's more of an epistle. So he's, he's writing in a little bit different style, okay? But listen to this from Acts chapter 17. This is from a time when Paul was in Athens. Now, while Paul was waiting for other disciples in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. 
Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for, in, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. But when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among them also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. What was Paul's purpose? Hey, look how smart I am. Look how morally superior I am. Now, you know what I hear in just the, the spirit of this story and the spirit of this narrative is why is Paul studying and evaluating the culture of the Athenian people? Why is he walking amongst the, 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 the gods and the, the monuments and studying the inscriptions? I hear in this text that he is looking for an inroad for the gospel. He's looking for a way to build a bridge. And yes, there's critique, and I'll come to that in a moment, but, but he is very much not looking simply to self-righteously condemn them and separate from them. He's looking for an opportunity for the gospel. This is why I say he's using the gospel as a lens for evaluation, but is also for the sake of the gospel that he's doing the evaluation. Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And this is where he's writing to a, a very similar culture as Athens, the, the city of Corinth nearby Athens, very much idolaters, but he had planted a church there. He discipled people there. Now he's moved on. He's writing a letter back to them. I'm going to pick up verse 
18 in chapter 1, he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Paul says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Again, why is Paul doing this evaluation to understand something of the Jewish subculture and the Greek subculture, to understand what each is striving for, what each says, oh, this is the most important thing right now. Again, he's looking for an inroad for the gospel. He's looking for a way to present the life and death and resurrection of Jesus in terms that they can understand. Now, how do you do this? And by the way, I went to the why first because I think the why is every bit as important as the how. I think we can stumble all over the how, doing our best to do this why. I want to glorify you, God, and I want to share your hope and your grace with people. And I want to do it intelligibly. I want to do it with clarity and even specificity because I've taken the time to evaluate and understand something about what they believe and something about what they're striving for. And we'll build on this next week, Lord willing. But the how then, after we get the why, the how, how do we evaluate? Well, looking through the lens of the gospel, you know that a person, an idea, a belief, a movement will likely have both strengths and weaknesses. They will likely still have vestiges of Genesis 1 and 2 because they were formed in the image of God. But you will also see the weakness and the brokenness and the sin because the fall happened and the image of God has been marred. But what we also see in the redemption story is that perhaps this person is redeemable, but not by wisdom, not by power, not by, by joining a movement, not by having wealth or any other thing like that, but like he says here, it's, it's through faith in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we're evaluating culture, we, we never identify some part of culture like, oh, that one thing, that's what's wrong with everything. But at the same time, we don't say that over there, that is the Savior, that will fix it. Because we understand the gospel story. Tim Keller says in Center Church, every human culture is an extremely complex mixture of brilliant truth marred by half-truths and overt resistance to the truth. This suggests that our stance toward every human culture should be one of critical enjoyment and an appropriate wariness. Yes, we should enjoy the insights and the creativity of other peoples and cultures. We should recognize and celebrate expressions of justice and wisdom and truth and beauty in every culture, but we approach every culture with awareness that it has been distorted by sin, and in particular, the sin of idolatry. All cultures contain elements of darkness and light. 
So what are some implications of this very quickly? Again, if we look at the two texts we just read where we see Paul, we see this mixture of, not he's not just blindly accepting everything, but he's not just against everything either. He's not separating from everything. He's not just creating a parallel culture over here and saying, oh, let's do all the same stuff as them, but we'll do it over here and we'll call it a Christian such and so, right? He doesn't do that. What you see is a mixture of condemnation, critique, building bridges, understanding, evaluating all these things. So let me give you three ways. Again, very briefly, this because this is very simple. How do we do this? Well, number one, you need to observe. And I'm talking about listening as other people speak or paying attention as you're reading different things and not, not listening to rebuke or to rebut. You know how often you're in a conversation, an argument with someone and you're not listening to try to understand their position. You already know what you want to say, and you're kind of like, okay, like just, just let me talk. And you're not gaining any wisdom from that. You're not gaining any facts from that. You're not even gaining any empathy from that. So we need to learn to listen, not just to immediately offer our response, but we need to learn to listen to understand what is being said. That way we don't just erect a straw man of like, oh, this is what you believe. <laughs> See, I got rid of your thing. And they, they might say, well, that's, that's not what I said. That's not what I believe. So observe. This is where Paul starts in these stories that I just read for you, is he's observing. This is what Jesus so often did. It says he looked at people. He saw them. He listened to them. There was so much nuance there to what Jesus was doing. Secondly, as, as you're observing, then compare and contrast certain aspects of culture to scripture, okay? So how do the claims of this person or this movement or this idea or this belief, how does it align with the clear teaching of God's word? Not with my pre-existing opinions, but with, but with the Bible. How does it square with this? What does the Bible say about the dignity of human life and human rights? What does the Bible say about gender and sexuality and marriage and divorce? What does the Bible say about vocation and calling and work and work ethic? What does the Bible say about the role of government in society? What does the Bible say about the arts and the role of creativity and beauty? And we could go on and on and on. But our interest as followers of Jesus is, what did you say about that thing, God? I mean, and just like I need a pair of glasses to see and interpret my world, anything about it, I need your lens to see and interpret my world, to evaluate properly. So to do this well, friends, you've got to do a couple different types of theology. Something that's called systematic theology is kind of topical. And I just kind of did that. Like, what does the Bible say about gender and sexuality and work and government and all that? That's systematic theology. But you also need to be just doing basic expositional Bible study where you're like, what does this grammar mean? What was going on in that history and that culture? I got to understand what this writer was saying to those people so I can apply that timeless truth to my own life and to culture today. Okay, by the way, let me, let me just tell you this little nugget, okay? You are what you eat. Okay, garbage in, garbage out. You want to be a person who can evaluate culture through the lens of God's word and do so with some high degree of accuracy and empathy at the same time. You've got to get this book in you. Okay? And maybe we've all been around people that you just know from spending time with. They just they just exude not just a love for God's word, but they exude the wisdom of the word and maybe they couldn't even point you to a specific chapter and verse, 
but the Bible has so gotten into their heart and their mind that it just, it just pours from them when they're talking about basically anything, evaluating anything. So compare and contrast aspects of culture to scripture. And then number three, respond with appropriate gestures. And that word gestures is important. I'm, I'm taking this from Andy Crouch's book, Culture Making, where I think he makes a very helpful distinction between a posture, which is kind of like a fixed position, and a gesture, which is like this as I, as I talk. And there are gestures illustrating different things. So you know that some Christians have a default posture of compromise with the world, with culture. You know, they're, they're just lagging a few steps behind, trying to be cool, trying to be with it, trying to be popular, whatever. But they're always compromised. They're always selling out what this book and what the gospel teaches, and they have a whole pattern of doing that as a posture. There are other believers who have a posture of just condemning and judging and denouncing everything, right? There are other Christians that have a posture of just separatist. Again, like, I'll be over here. You guys do your thing. I'm going to be over here protecting, you know, within my walls, my little thing. So there, there are many different postures that Christians can take. And the, the wisdom that I'm suggesting, I've taught on this before as we've gone through culture before, but it's a gesture of, yeah, condemnation, a gesture of critique, gesture of, of building a bridge, gesture of affirming something good and right and beautiful, gesture of enjoying something or taking something. Again, looking at Paul in the sections I just read, you know, he, there's condemnation there because he says to the Athenians, hey, there's a day coming when Jesus Christ, who died and arose from the dead, will come again to judge, okay? Judge, condemn. That's negative. But they need to hear that as part of the truth of the gospel that they need to respond to. A lot of this is more like critique or correction where he's saying, look, I mean, you have idols. It's, it's so empty. It's so futile. Like these things over-promise and under-deliver. You got, you got an idol to a God. You don't even know who it is. You just want to make sure you didn't miss one. Well, you did, and I'll tell you his name. It's Jesus, and here's what he's done for you. So he, what does he do? He's critiquing like, oh, man, you have elements of the truth, but you're missing like the truth, the big picture critique. He's so often building then common ground. It's not just taking a nugget of someone else's truth, but you see how he does this, especially in Athens, where he says, in him we live and move and have our being. It's pointed out that this is quoting Epimenides of Crete, one of their authors. For we are indeed his offspring, quoting Eratus' poem, Phenomena. So again, what is he doing? He's saying, well, this writer, this Greek logic guy, he, he got something right. Let me just build on that. Okay, so instead of just tearing down everything and saying, no, Black Lives Matter, or this or that, or the right, or this, it's all bad, it's all, like, maybe there's a kernel of truth there, and you could build a bridge by saying, you know, I hear you talking about this, what, what do you mean by that phrase? Or do you know that that phrase or something similar is actually found in, in the words of Jesus? Like, let me, let me talk to you about that, building common ground, engaging, cultivating you're saying the gospel's thoroughly countercultural and that it meets the deepest needs of your heart. And then he lands on this conclusion, friends, you're, you're looking for power, Jews, signs. You're looking for um, wisdom as a Greek culture, always looking to learn something new. And he says, but here's the truth. The weakness of God in Jesus Christ 
hanging on a cross, the weakness of God is stronger than the greatest strength of man. And the foolishness of God to put his own son on a tree to die for your sins is greater than the greatest wisdom of men. So this point for practice, and this is what I want to do with our follow-up call here in a few minutes, is just maybe take an example or two from you, get some feedback from you. Um, you know, systemic injustice, I hear a lot about this, where Christians are like, no, I just don't believe in systemic injustice. We are personally responsible. And I'm like, are you, are you kidding me? I mean, yes, we're personally responsible. The Bible's very clear about that. But the Bible's also very clear that this guy named Adam sinned and everything fell and you and I were born under that curse, born under inherited sin from Adam, something that's systemic because it affects every single one of us. And yes, we are personally accountable to God. Therefore, we need to personally repent of our sins and personally place our faith in Jesus. But, but if I read the pages of the Bible, I'm not surprised that there is something like systemic injustice or systemic racism or systemic classism because I find that everywhere in the pages of Scripture, okay? So that's what I'm talking about is by practicing, we take the Word of God, we take a contemporary issue or two, we walk through it, and we say, Lord, how are we learning to evaluate culture? In other words, how are we learning to use your Word, your Gospel, as both the lens to view and to evaluate and also as the goal? I do this evaluation for the sake of the gospel so that I might share Christ. Let's go there and not toward judgment and condemnation and self-righteousness. Let's go toward grace and truth with the evaluation we do. God help us.